Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about the novella For Lesson, which was originally published in Orbit 14 in 1974. We read it in the story collection Castle of Days, though you can also find it in The Best of Gene Wolfe. So this is another one of these big novellas. So we're going to split our coverage across four episodes to do this one. That's going to be three recap episodes and then one discussion episode at the end. So this episode, we're covering up to page 120 in Castle of Days. That is not a section break, but it is a, a narrative pause. And, and the, the break between episodes two and three will actually be at a legit section break. Right. I really love this story this time around. I read it first in The Best of Gene Wolfe, which I got probably eight or nine years ago. And it just didn't really land for me. But this time I had a completely different experience reading it. There's a lot more melancholy and sort of tragedy in this story that you pick up on, I think, the older you are than when you're reading it when you're 25 and you still think workplaces can be all right. (laughs) So um, we're going to talk about some of that in the discussion. But gosh, this is a really, really great wolf story. But we've also got an announcement to make. Yeah, before we get into this story, I just want to let people know that, hey, we've got another new show on the network. Brent Helt and I are doing a monthly Neil Gaiman podcast called Hanging Out with the Dream King. It's the same idea as this show. We're going to spend decades working through a speculative fiction writer's body of work, though in this case, we're not doing it chronologically. We're going to start working our way through Gaiman's stories with The Sandman because Brent and I are solidly middle-aged now and need to pretend like it's still the 90s at least once a month for our own uh, sanity. That's going to take us a few years and then, you know, we'll figure out where to go next after that. So if you're into Neil Gaiman, we do really hope you'll check that out. And even if you aren't, you probably know people who are, and we'd appreciate it if you told them about the project. And of course, you know, this is all just part of our insidious plan to get more of your friends to finally come around to reading Gene Wolfe. I mean, you know, when we get to Fables and Reflections, I plan on spending at least five episodes just on Gene Wolfe's introduction of that volume. <laughs> yeah, as I said before, I, I'm going to be reading along with this podcast, and it's great. So uh, I hope you will join Glenn and Brent for hanging out with the Dream King. But Glenn, we've got a w- lot of work to do to get through this story. So let's just start with the part one recap. Yeah. Yeah, this is going to be a big recap. All the recap episodes are going to be big because there is a lot of detail in this story that is also quite a long story. When Emmanuel Forlesson awoke, his wife was already up preparing breakfast. Forlesson remembered nothing, knew nothing but his name, for an instant did not remember his wife, or that she was his wife, or that she was a human being, or what human beings were supposed to be like. At the time he woke, he knew only his name. The rest came later and is therefore suspect, colored by rationalization and the expectations of the woman herself and the other people. He moaned, and his wife said, Oh, you're awake. Better read The Orientation. So those are the first two paragraphs of For Lesson, and what a masterclass they are in how to open a story. The themes are clear, and we immediately know some of the questions that we should be asking, and there's a great hook. Yeah, it's Awesome. Wolf is playing with two ideas here in terms of philosophy, I think. The first one is last Thursdayism, which is the idea that the world could have been created last Thursday with everything standing intact exactly as it is. And there would be no logical impossibility, at least, to anyone making that claim. Though this claim, which was kind of created by Bertrand Russell uh, to discredit 
people who think there's sort of an innate deception built into the universe uh, is designed to point out the absurdity of people who make claims like that or the absurdity of those claims. And it is maybe absurd to think that there is a an innate deception built into the universe and the modes in which we make knowledge claims about how we observe the universe and the scientific mode in which we discern its age and the age of the artifacts within it. This notion here, like last Thursdayism, is also combined with the other notion of tabula rasa, which is the idea that people are born with a clean state and a clean slate. And often in often when this is used in stories, we see a character wake up like Emmanuel Forlesson does with a sort of amnesia, and he has a clean skate, a clean slate. So it's a way to investigate the claim that people have innate characteristics. Uh, and those characteristics can then be corrupted by the way the world operates. So Wolf is really, in these two paragraphs alone, giving us a philosophical thought exercise that asks what we would do if we woke up with no memory of the world or ourselves. How would we make sense of our identity and the world that we are interpolated into? And this is an amazing hook. I love Tabula Rasa stories. Emmanuel Forlesson has to create his whole approach to the world waking up as an adult who's married. We also have to take a moment here to talk about the names Wolf gives our protagonist. For lesson here is a word that is no longer really in use in the English language. It means to lose, abandon, destroy, forsake, etc., something along those lines. And the name Emmanuel is an anglicization of a Hebrew word that means God is with us. In the book of Isaiah, in the Hebrew Bible, the prophet Isaiah claims that God will give his people a Messiah born of a virgin, and the name will be Emmanuel. Christian theology views this as a prophecy about the coming of Christ. So Christ and the name Emmanuel are interlinked in Christian theology. We should also point out here that one of the last utterances of Christ is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I'm not exactly sure what Wolf is doing with this name here. It's kind of a lot to put on the name of a character. But we'll have plenty to talk about in our discussion with regards to syncretism, which we'll see in just a little bit. Um, and that's the fusion of multiple religions or philosophies. We'll be talking about all of these in our discussion. Yeah, if we're given a character name that means forsaken Christ or Christ the forsaken or forgotten Christ, something like that. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to spend some time on that. But it's great that we we have that in mind right as we get going, because I think we're going to want to pay attention to that as we get through the story. I mean, you know, you've stolen a little bit of my thunder. I thought I might surprise you with this question later on to ask if somebody might be Christ in this story, but uh, but I guess you've seen through it, my ruse. <laughs> I have. It was too obvious in this, in this case. <laughs> All right. Well, so Forlesen does not remember anything about himself or about his life. He doesn't know where he works or what he's supposed to do, and it takes a while for even some basic vocabulary to come back to him, and at, at first he thinks that feet are called shoes. I don't know, it was a fun dad joke for me. He also doesn't know where he is, though his wife explains that this is the bedroom of their home, though it is also serving as their kitchen, since the home doesn't have a proper space for food preparation for some reason. And neither of them know anything about the house and why it doesn't have a kitchen, which, you know, is a thing most of us take for granted as an attribute of a house. Everything for Lesson's wife, and, and her name, by the way, is Edna for Lesson. Everything Edna knows about the house comes from an orientation packet that she found when she woke up, which was only a little bit before for Lesson did. And what she knows is that there's this room, 
a parlor, a bathroom, and then a room for the children, who we aren't going to meet for a very long time. The orientation packet also contains information about what they do, what they're for, what their function is. Edna skipped the part about her husband's job and read about her role, and it turns out that her function is to stay at home and look after things while for lesson works. And this is a pretty standard middle-class arrangement of the the 1970s in America, but it's not instinctive for them. They really have no idea what they are for, what they're supposed to do next, what sort of purpose they have. And they also don't have any instinctive love for each other, something that has you know transcended memory loss. They're just two people with amnesia who've woken up together and been informed by a binder full of instructions that they're in this together and have functions to perform together you know, in tandem. And in addition to all of this confusion, Forlesson looks in a mirror and doesn't recognize himself. And in fact, he emphatically believes that the person he sees in the mirror is not him. This bit about the mirrors plays a really important role in the story. And I think we'll have to look at mirrors or windows as a kind of portal, maybe related to time, maybe not. I'm not quite sure. But based on Forlesson's response to seeing himself in the mirror, it seems like he feels like he's seeing a future version of himself, a self he doesn't recognize. And what is it exactly that he does see in the mirror? Is this just part is this just Wolf reinforcing the the trope of the Tabula Rasa? Mostly I'm just thinking here of the season six episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> where the Scoobies have to figure out who they are based on what they're wearing and how they instinctually relate to one another. But the mirror here serves on some level to let us know that Forlesson at least has a a mental image of himself that really doesn't correspond with his movements through the world up until this point, if he's even had any. And they definitely don't correspond with some innate vision that he has of himself. I'm glad you pointed out the name Edna to Glenn. Edna is another Hebrew name that means pleasure or delight, and it's etymologically related to the Hebrew word for Eden as well. So we have that happening in this story too. Forsaken Eden or Lost Eden is another name we're given right up front. I also don't think that I can emphasize the importance of the manuals uh, to the overarching theme of this story or of my reading of this story. Uh, You know, we all know that magazines were kind of a big deal in the 70s, and and they all seem to have some sort of prescriptive method for how to keep a house, how to make the best meals, and how to get ahead in your job and all that sort of stuff. So I'm going to suggest when we get to our discussion episode, and this is why I want everyone to keep this in mind, that this is connected to the subsuming of life by technique or technology. And this I'm getting from Jacques Ellul's book, The Technological Society. For now, I just want our listeners to keep this to keep in mind how everything has been reduced to a series of tasks that anyone can accomplish if they follow the right steps, regardless of natural aptitudes, desire, passion, intelligence, or creativity. Um, the good life in this world so far is just about following the right steps and meaning doesn't really come into play at all yeah i want to keep edna's name in mind i mean both of their names in mind as we get into the the next few pages as these characters are going to be introduced to this world that they've woken up in but which they don't recognize and and thinking about lost eden and you know the exile from the the garden that the punishment for the commission of original sin is that man has to work and woman has to give birth to to children i think we're going to get that kind of explicitly uh, alluded to here on on the page and you know it's it's time to actually to look through these orientation materials because for lesson is now having 
some coffee, right? This is this is all of us, I think. And this material in the orientation manual here is just awesome. It's really fantastic. You know, we'd expect that from Wolf. So I'm just going to read this. Welcome to the planet, planet. You have awakened completely ignorant of everything. Do not be disturbed by this. It is normal. Under no circumstances ever allow yourself to become excited, confused, angry, or fearful. While you possess these capacities, they are to be regarded as incapacities. Anything you may have remembered upon awakening is false. The orientation books provided you contain information of inestimable value. Master it as soon as possible, but do not be late for work. If there are no orientation books where you are, go to the house on your right from the street. Do not go to the house on your left. If you cannot find any books, live like everyone else. The white paper under this paper is your job assignment. The yellow paper is your table of commonly used weights and measures. Read these first. They are more important than the books. And we should say a couple of things about the text of this document that you can't get just from listening to me read it. First, some words or phrases are in all caps. I, I have tried to mimic that in my reading without you know, shouting at you while you're driving or doing your dishes. And second, the word weights in weights and measures is the wrong weight, or, or at least not the one that we would expect. It's not the word about how much things weigh, but rather it's about waiting for something to happen. I'm really glad you pointed out the wrong use of weights and measures here. Something is definitely not quite right in this world. Apart from the misuse of that, we have for less than confused about the words shoes and feet, and we'll have other kind of mistakes about the formation of the world that will be pointed out to us as we as we continue to read the story. And we'll get some suggestions as to what actually is going on here or why this is the case at the very end of the story. So I'm not going to get into it now. But what I really want to hone in on in this section is the notion that emotions are to be regarded as incapacities and that being fearful in the list of emotions is in all caps. I want to point that out now because there are many moments coming up where the way others act uh, towards Emmanuel or the kind of information he comes across makes it clear that he is really being threatened on all sides, that these are really just implicit threats. So even the phrase in all caps here, do not go into the house on your left, implies a threat. Something will happen if you do. And what is the response to a threat but either fear or excitement or anger or any of the emotions they sort of listed off before. And and we're going to see that breaking some of these rules is met with explicit threats later on. And it's just crazy. But I also love that this is a, if you ever find yourself stranded somewhere without a memory, um, this, this is a pretty good guide to get you going, you know, in terms of philosophy. Yeah. If you can't find any books, just live like everyone else. I mean, that does <laughs> right. seem safe. It'll right? get you started. It's a foot yeah. in the door at least. <laughs> right. And don't be late for work. I guess that's pretty solid advice just for getting on in the world as well. Yeah. That's all really anyone actually cares about is whether or not you're late to work. <laughs> well, I want to point out just before we move on to the next section too, I do just want to make sure we're, we're emphasizing what Wolf was emphasizing here, which is, you know, a contrast between turning right, turning left, and then waiting and 
being measured, right? These are things that might have something to do with Christian perceptions of, or Christian conceptions of the afterlife. And we might want to be thinking about that as we go. So let's move on to the job assignment here that he gets in this manual. And and again, I'm just going to read this document. And we're going to get just two more documents after this. But before I read it, let's note that his name is wrong on this document, which he, he also mentions to his wife. They think that their last name is For Lesson, right, which is the title of the story. But this document is for Forlozen, comma, E. So here's what this text says. Forlozen, comma, E. You work at Model Pattern Products, 19000370 Plant Parkway, Highland Industrial Park. Your duties are supervisory and managerial. When you arrive, punch in on the S&M clock, beige, not the labor clock, brown. The union is particular about this. Go to the reconstruction and advanced research section. To arrive on time, leave before 060.30.00. For Lowson here is a really interesting word. Apparently it comes from a Dutch dialect called Western Frisian, and it can be translated to mean the redemption. So there's another kind of layer to these names that Wolf is playing with, this kind of messianic imagery. Wolf's also making a joke that there's probably an element of sadism and or masochism involved in any form of corporate management, or at least (laughs) in those people who particularly enjoy it. One thing we haven't pointed out is that as for lesson is eating and drinking coffee, everything has a taste of oil to it. The food isn't right. There's something off about it. And Forlesson notices this a lot throughout the day. Something else that Wolf is playing with throughout this story is time. It's all kind of wonky. It's not quite the clock that we use. It's a 240-hour day instead of a 24-hour day. That's going to happen a lot in the story. Wolf uses it a lot. And it works in print. It doesn't work quite as well, you know, audio, on audio, the way that we're doing this. So I don't think we'll quite point it out as frequently as Wolf does. But this is the first instance that we get of it. So I wanted to make sure that that's clear here. So there is another document here that Forlesson needs to read before he heads off to model pattern products to perform his S&M duties, his supervisory and managerial duties, whatever, you know, that will actually turn out to mean. And this one is titled How to Drive. And I won't read this one, but we should talk about some of the, the highlights. So there's a car that Forlesson has access to, but he's not allowed to do anything to this car. He can't modify it in any way. He can't drive it more than 40 miles per hour. And hour here is uh, another misspelled word, right? It's not the, the unit of time. It's the possessive form of us, right? Belonging to us. Like, you know, this is our podcast. There are two rules here about picking up hitchhikers. So I guess that's a serious concern if it gets two rules. He has to halt and render medical assistance to injured persons. But then the next rule says that he cannot stop at any time or for any reason. So, you know, which is it is the question that I have. When he's in his car, he's supposed to pretend that no one else exists. He he can't wave or shout at other drivers, and he can't even notice people in other vehicles. And finally, he's not allowed to drive the car to improper destinations. So basically, this car is just for going to work and coming home and then going to work again. It's a really, really funny way to describe a commute or like the life of a commuter. It's also another great example of what living in a technological society would mean for Jacques Ellul. The car exists to serve a greater purpose. Uh, like getting to work and performing tasks. And we exist to serve the needs of the car. We're kind of 
subservient to those greater things. We don't really have cars because they're a tool that we can use however we want and we're free to use it. Rather, we exist to serve the needs of the car and its functioning because it permits us to fit well into the greater scheme of task and, and labor. You know, rather than the car being a symbol of freedom, you can drive anywhere, you can do anything you want with it, it's another symbol of our own servitude to the broader society that we live in. And that couldn't be more clear in the rules that Wolf is pointing out. Also, I want to point out here that because time is so weird on this planet, but human biology apparently remains the same, the car includes a urinal and a defecator. I mean, how long is this guy going to be in the car that these things are a standard part of the package? Yeah, we're going to get the commute itself narrated here in a, in a little bit. And it seems like a, a kind of crazy, adventurous commute that maybe takes a, a really long time. But there is something wonky going on with the way that Forlesson is experiencing time in this story as, as well. I mean, we've already talked about the 240-hour day. And I, I, I do really love the way that Wolf points out here the the conundrum, the kind of catch-22 that we've probably all found ourselves in at some point you know in uh, in america anyway that you have a car so you can get to work and you kind of realize that you know the car's like your biggest expense and you have to spend all this time on it that maybe you're going to work so you can have a car but you have a car so you can go to work so why am i not just living in a tent in the mountains and like trapping squirrels and being free right which is certainly a question that wolf has asked in the fifth head of cerberus well, so it is time now to, to start leaving for work. And Forlesson looks out the windows to, to see if there really is a car there. There is. And he notices some things about their, their home, about the, the, the neighborhood or the, the vicinity of their home. There's a courtyard back there behind their, their home. And the other homes that ring this courtyard are identical to his. And in the courtyard, there are three dead plants in terracotta jars. But what he really pays attention to is that in the house directly behind his, another man is doing the exact same thing that Forlesson is. And, and this freaks Forlesson out. The, the, the man across the way looks afraid. But Forlesson also, for, for some intuitive reason here, thinks that this man across the way, he's, he's a bit older, but he thinks that this man is a, a future version of himself, despite the fact that this man has features that Forlesson simply doesn't have, like a mole and just a totally different facial structure, but this is an intense feeling that he has. This is another moment in the story where Wolf is using these windows and mirrors as portals to the future in some way, for less than forecasting his life uh, as it's going to happen to him. Whether or not who for lesson sees is himself, I, I think is immaterial, though I don't actually think that. I think it's actually really important, and we're going to talk about it in the discussion, um, because we're actually going to learn who it is that for lesson sees by the end of the story. But for lesson recognizes something about ending up at the same place where the other man is. And as you said, Glenn, this man has a gold tooth and a mole above his eye, but he's balding like Forlesson is. He's a little stocky. Uh, we're going to see this description of a character uh, come out in many characters that Forlesson meets in the story. I, I also want to point out here that when Forlesson gets up from the table, Edna says, you're always jumping up from the table. But this is not really a claim that she can make. They woke up at the same time without knowing anything. But she's extrapolated some piece of information from Emmanuel for lessons acting this way, from getting up and being curious and looking out the window, and has decided 
that this is a mark of his character and she judges him very quickly and that judgment is final that is who he is that is what he's like and this is a very disturbing moment for me as a reader and one of the things we're going to talk about in our discussion is the for lesson marriage because it's a little sad uh, as you learn more about it throughout the story yeah, and this encounter, and, and really, I think, as you say, Brandon, it's, it's the conversation that he has about the encounter with his wife. It really affects him, and it prompts for a lesson to look at yet another of these documents that they've, they've got in this orientation material. And this is the, the Red Book, which is supposed to tell you how to be good and how to live everything like that. And this is a, a fascinating artifact. I think we're going to want to keep it in mind when we get to our discussion and our asking the wolfish question. So what actually happened in this story? This book has a red leather cover, and on the inside, it's in two languages in uh, a facing translation. The The left side is in red in a language for lesson doesn't understand. And on the, the right side, there is an English translation that's printed in black. And this time, again, I, I do want to just read the text of this document because, you know, it's really fun, but also because it's going to be, I think, extremely significant later. So here's what it says. Of the nature of death and the dead, we may enumerate twelve kinds. First, there are those who become new gods, for whom new universes are born. Second, those who praise. Third, those who fight as soldiers in the unending war with evil. Fourth, those who amuse themselves among flowers and sweet streams with sports. Fifth, those who dwell in gardens of bliss, or are tortured. Sixth, those who continue as in life. Seventh, those who turn the wheel of the universe. Eighth, those who find in their graves their mother's wombs and in one life circle forever. Ninth, ghosts. Tenth, those born again as men in their grandson's time. Eleventh, those who return as beasts or trees. And last, those who sleep. There's a lot going on here and a lot of connections to the fifth head of Cerberus and other things that Wolf has written. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing we'll want to do in our discussion is look for examples of whether or not the characters in the story that Furlesson comes across display any of these characteristics. And I think we will find people like that. Uh, so I'm not going to really break down this text at this point. But I, I want to say that this is the prime example of the syncretism that Wolf is engaging with in the story. This is Wolf maybe also sort of poking fun at modernity. And here I'm thinking of something like the end of T.S. Eliot's inclusion of phrases uh, from the Upanishads at the end of the wasteland. And, and this sort of uh, syncretism with different uh, Eastern belief systems was a big part of modernity, of incorporating these sorts of finds from spiritual texts into Western literature. We're also going to see in just a moment that Furlesson is deeply troubled by the way the text is translated because there are things that just don't make sense grammatically between the two texts he is faced with. Right. Furlesson for notices that there are some places where the, the facing texts don't really seem to be a, a, a translation. And in particular, the, the last line in English seems to get a whole paragraph in the original language. And so there's, you know, there's something up with that. But he also notices that his wife has a book of her own that is called Food Preparation in the Home. And one of the lines he reads is, remember that if he does not go, you and your children will starve, which I guess does actually about sum up our way of life. 
But we don't dwell on that here because it is finally time to, to go to work. And the, the drive to work is going to be the rest of this episode because it is quite a long incident here. And then the, the next two episodes that we do, the next two recap episodes, what we'll cover for Lesson's time at work. Okay, so when Forlesson gets outside, the, the door to his home locks behind him, and he has no way of getting back in, which, you know, is ominous. And on the sidewalk in front of him are written the instructions, go to your right, not to your left. He gets in his car and he begins to drive without really knowing where he's going. And then a communicator in the car begins to talk to him, and he gets some directions for going to work. And he turns onto what amounts to be a, a, a ramp onto a highway, though it's uh, it's quite a high ramp. Uh, Wolf describes it as an airborne ribbon of pavement that traced a thin streak through the sky. It's a beautiful phrase. And he's above the roofs of houses and and even higher than the the tops of trees. And at first his mind wanders to what his wife Edna is doing with her day. And he thinks that she will spend much of the day looking out the window at an empty street. And he both pities her and also envies her at the, the same time. And I think this will be an important part of our discussion eventually too. And thinking of his wife, he stops the car with some vague thought of returning home and devising some plan by which they could either stay there together or go together to wherever it is that he's being sent. And I found this to be kind of a really heartbreaking moment here where he realizes that this whole system is designed that he can't actually spend the bulk of his time with his partner or with his family. Yeah, it's extraordinarily sad. I mean, here we have a man who hasn't even seen his own children, but only kind of evidence that they exist, artifacts of their existence. His wife has been convinced by her home manuals that if he doesn't go to his job, his children will starve. And she doesn't say this to him. She acts as if this is true towards him um, because she's informed by her manual that it's her duty to get him out the door And that is the sacrifice that she has to make to keep everyone alive. And he can't even really slow down to stop or or even think about this without getting into some sort of trouble or encountering an implicit threat. She pushes him out the door before he can even register what he read in in that manual. So even though there is a real satirical voice to this story, Wolf is painting a a really bleak picture. Right. This is a a society in which, you know, this man does not actually want to go to his job. He wants to just drink coffee and talk with his wife just to to be in their home together. But she's been told they're all going to die if she doesn't find a way to get him to leave and go to, to work. And so they don't even actually get to spend this time they have in the morning, you know, on the same page or really being together in some way because because the whole system has set up this antagonistic relationship for them from the start that even just carries over into their own home that's all about getting him to work well now that for has stopped to, to think about all of this for car asks if he requires mechanical assistance and at this point for becomes concerned that he can't actually see what is supporting this airborne ribbon of pavement so he goes to the edge and he, he looks over and here we get a, a great wolfish passage about light and shadow that, of course, you know, is going to have thematic resonance here. He sees the shadow of the road stretching long over the houses below it, but he also sees shadows that are probably of whatever support system there is. But these shadows are, are twisted and broken and he, he can't tell if that is a feature of the shadows themselves or if this is a feature of the objects that are supplying the shadows. But... He also doesn't have any more time to worry about this because now, uh, for the first time, another car is is driving on the road. 
it's a blue car painted with a fantastic design. It's a, a mingling of fabulous beasts with plants and what appear to be wholly abstract symbols. And it's slowing down to stop at Forlesson's car. And of course, we recognize immediately that it is a police car. And the policeman asks Forlesson what he's doing outside of his car. But when Forlesson begins to explain that he was curious about the world, the policeman just says, get back in. Get back in your car, bud. I'm telling you, you better get back. But Forlesson is still actually looking down at the, the ground during this encounter, at least at this point in the encounter. And he just says, come here and look at this. And then behind him, he hears the cop get out of the car. And he, quite naively, he assumes that the cop is coming to join him and to take a look at these crazy shadows. But of course, that's not what's actually happening. And instead, the, the cop draws his pistol and jabs it into Forlesson's back in order to get him to go back into his own car. And at this point, for lessons, he's that this policeman is only half a, a man. He's an, an upper body that's attached to the car via a series of plastic tubes, some of which are the, the color of blood. But even though I find this to be a pretty disturbing image and would be terrified, you know, if this is the world I wake up in tomorrow, for lessons, not afraid of this encounter. And when he gets back in his car, he says, I'm back in my car now. Can I, can I tell you what I just saw? And... He is really concerned that the, the pillars that hold up the road are falling down, and he has questions about it. He's curious about his world, and you know, in, in particular, he's curious about the world from a civil engineering perspective. And his own car speakers answer him here. They, they tell him that this seems like an unauthorized stop and tell him to, to continue to work. And the cop does very much the, the same. The, the cop's been speaking to someone via his car's communication system, and now he's back, and he's pointing his pistol at for lesson, and he says... You roll that thing, bud, and you roll it now, or I shoot. And at this, as I think most of us would do, for lesson decides to step on the accelerator and continue toward his work. I guess if you had no concept of the world and didn't know what to expect, running into uh, and a, somebody getting out of a car uh, attached to it via tubes, though maybe that's not the way you get around, might not seem crazy, though clearly does seem crazy i think yeah. and, and it would to anybody but for a lesson is just too caught up in his own curiosity and this is really the second time that for lessons curiosity has led to trouble or maybe even the third if you're really keeping a close count the first time was when he was just trying to look out his own window and talk to his wife about it and his wife got so uneasy um, because maybe he'd be late for work he's not focusing on getting the morning tasks done eating a healthy breakfast and getting out the door um, the second time I think had to do with reading the the red book and trying to ask questions about the translations and just getting shut down and and all of those come with sort of these implicit threats of, of look away or don't worry about it just focus on your task but this time he's threatening the civic order by stopping his car and being curious about how the world is made that he woke up in how was it created and wolf seems to be implying in this episode that it's through this type of curiosity and engagement with the world like stepping outside of your domains of pure duty and task that a larger crisis can be averted. I mean, if there is an issue with a highway and for less than noticed and reported it to the right person, that's a good thing. But in this world, because he shouldn't be encountering the world on those terms, it's a bad thing. It's so bad to engage with the world in that way, in this world, that it could be a death sentence. And that, that's a horrifying sort of world to live in. Yes, and I think we absolutely believe in this moment that this robot tube 
cop is going to shoot for lesson if he doesn't drive and and you know who knows then what becomes of for lesson uh, and who knows at that point what com- comes of for lesson's body you know how he's replaced or something like that depending on what we think this world actually is but the threat of violence is real in this moment and i think the horror of this is all doubled down on by the fact that he keeps using the word bud he addresses for lesson as bud which you know buddy friend he's calling him a friend even as he's pointing a pistol at him and threatening to shoot him because he's expressed curiosity in the world and is wanting to be more than simply his function. Well, this road that he's been on connects now to a real highway with real traffic, and he finds that he enjoys the experience of driving, even though he is still preoccupied with the the shadows of the, the road support system. And the car itself is serious business, as you mentioned earlier, Brandon. It's got toilet facilities. It's also got a drink dispenser, and it's basically a home unto itself, which is great because it is actually taking him a long time to get to work. But he's still not going to get to work just yet, because now he sees a hitchhiker. And this guy is not standing on the side of the road, but rather he's on the concrete divider between the two directions of traffic. And he's showing each car that he wants to ride, right? It doesn't matter which side of the divide the car is on, which direction the car is traveling. He will take a ride going anywhere. And even though there are two rules about hitchhikers in the rule book that for lesson read before leaving home... He stops and picks up this guy. And this guy's something of a comedic figure. He's too tall, he, he looks like a scarecrow, and he's got bad teeth in a good smile. His name is Abraham Beale. That's you know probably significant, and, and I think also now we can also see a pattern emerging in the naming conventions here, which is always something that Wolf loves to play with. The first thing that Abraham Beale says is that he was worried that Forlesson would get hit by other cars as he stopped to, to pick him up, because more than half the people on the road are asleep. And he follows this up by saying, you're awake, so I guess you thought everybody was. Ain't that right? Beale, it turns out, is looking for work because he, he lost the last job that he had. And he's got a pretty crazy resume. He's apparently a lawyer, but he's soldiered some and worked stock out west. He's lumberjacked. That's not a word we use as a verb frequently enough, I will say. So he's lumberjacked, and he's worked on a railroad, and he's a pretty good reaper mechanic. And he's even done some plowing, though that was back when he was a kid growing up on a farm. And thinking about this farm, this prompts a little more of Beale's backstory here. So he grew up on this farm, and when he was an adult, his dad died, and he inherited the farm. But the same day that he found out about this, he got a letter saying that the state was taking over the farm in order to, to build a highway through it, an eminent domain here. So, of course, he was paid for the property, and he even invested that money, but it just never grew. And the interest that he collects on his investment just doesn't amount to anything. And he tells a sort of parable about this in which he compares this to an apple tree that grew on his family farm. It never died, but every winter it would die back just a little bit, first one limb and then another, until there just wasn't much left of it. But his father always thought it would bounce back, so he never grubbed it out, and eventually it just stopped bearing fruit altogether. Yeah, there, there's just a lot going on here with this character. It's kind of crazy. Uh So we'll just start with the name. Abraham means exalted father or father of many. He is one of the early patriarchs in the Hebrew Bible, and the Israelites are descended from him. That's a covenant with God about his descendants. And Beal is an English surname, meaning handsome man. It comes from the French beau, and uh, it could also mean like fair or beautiful. So we'll make of that what we will. I I don't know if the names are super symbolic in this story. They feel like they have to be. But we're going to wait to puzzle that out, I think, till we get to the discussion. Right. And this naming convention of you know, the four lessons are EF, that's their initials. And then here we have 
AB. So somewhere in the middle, then there would be CD. That's how we get to EF. So there's some kind of generational thing or something like that going on here. Right. And that's going to become way more evident as the story goes on. But even in this section, Glenn, you're absolutely right. Everyone Abraham talks about in his family has the same initials that he does. His brother's name is Avery. And we just see a few other examples where it's AB. I I love this parable about the apple tree too. First, because you just can't bring up apple trees in a story without (laughs) evoking the idea of original sin and the Garden of Eden, which we've already which we already seem to be flirting with some of these ideas. But even though we're dealing with this sort of iterative iterative naming convention, Abraham just refers to his father as dad who runs a farm. And with this tree, we see that not only does the tree just die back year by year and it's not pruned and it's not going to grow anymore, um, but that it's also used as a means to punish. Uh, the father makes Avery cut a, a switch from the tree, and it's used as a, a punishment, a way to, to whip Avery. So I don't, I don't want to make too much of a stretch here, but if the tree is representative of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, I think Wolf might at this point be asking us to contemplate the question of whether or not such knowledge, that sort of ethical and moral knowledge, is useful in a world that's just dominated by task manuals for humans. Can such knowledge lead to a more efficient and productive mode of being? You know, especially it it may not, especially if ethical knowledge is just replaced by the ability to wield wealth, which is something we'll see happen in just a moment. And on another level, this parable is about a tree that just dies a little bit on the inside every year in doesn't ever actually die all the, the way in a, in a bodily sense, but stops bearing fruit is the phrase here, right? But metaphorically, I would say, you know, stops having any kind of creativity, stops having any kind of joy, right? This is about dying a little bit on the inside every year, just bit by bit. Right. And that is a major theme of this story. <laughs> yes. I <think. laughs> but I, I mean, in general, I just find Abraham Beale to be a fascinating presence in this story. And there's, there's a few reasons why I think this. We don't really ever see him again. There's a sentence about him later on. But this is a long excursion to take in a story about uh, how terrible it is to go to work every day. But Abraham Beale gives us a real sense of world building. We're given a sense of the history of the planet that is very different from the one that Emmanuel Furlesson seems to be born into. And Beale seems to represent a time when people had freedom to change jobs or explore various avenues for their lives and be socially mobile. Beale also points out, Glenn, as you did uh, in, in, in recapping, that Furlesson is awake and that most people are asleep. He's here as a sort of prophet in some way. Um, and, and this indicates to me the idea that most people are asleep, that people just aren't curious about the world, curious enough about the world and the possibilities that are inherent in it to change anything about their status. They're totally complacent. And we'll see if this happens to for lesson as the story goes on. Yeah, and I, I should have emphasized more. I mean, it does mean literally asleep. It doesn't just mean like zoning out and not really paying attention. It means these people are like catching some Z's here in their cars, which maybe are kind of self-driving in some way, which would make sense given that it's got a toilet and like a soda machine and so on. But also you noted earlier that we should we should be on the lookout for people who are 
exhibiting the behaviors that we get in this list of the 12 types of dead people that there are. And asleep, being asleep is one of them. So it seems like maybe we're getting an instance of that here, an example of that here. Well, you said that this this encounter with Beale is a pretty big excursion, and it is, and we're actually not even done with it yet. So thinking about his investment, this this prompts Beale to talk about his conception of the role that money plays in the world. He has some some philosophy on political economy, I guess we might say, and he contrasts big money with little money. These are in, in caps. These are proper nouns here. And he says that people with big money are living in a different world than people with little money. And, and this belies any rigid arithmetic. And, and for example, he says that a man with $50,000 seemingly has 10 times what a man with $5,000 has. But that's not really true. A man who has $50,000 in cash doesn't have worries, and he can get the world around him to conform to his desires. So it's not a difference of degree, but it's actually a difference of kind. And just for fun, I, I ran an inflation calculator on these numbers. And what Wolf means by $50,000 is the ability to pay cash for uh, a modest house in like your average American suburb. And Bill goes on to say that what he means is that it costs more to be poor than it does to be rich. Wealthy people can buy in bulk, and this means that the, the per item price is much lower. And of course, there are some things that poor people simply can't buy at all. And, and this leads him to the, the role of money in politics. People with big money own state legislatures, but people with little money aren't able to buy political influence at all at, at any price. That's not something you can buy like a little bit of. You can't buy a smidgen of that. It's either all or nothing. And even if people with little money work collectively, this is simply a power that they're never going to have because a thousand times nothing is still nothing. And boy, this is some pointed stuff. Yeah, Wolf is just real salty about lobbying here at this point in the story. But I think this is really connected to the value of kind of normative moral morals and ethics that people are asked to adhere to uh, that don't have this type of power in the political system. Wolf here is pointing out that laws are written to benefit the powerful and the wealthy, while people with little money, these little money people are really useless to impact the system, but are still asked to conform to certain ethical practices that keep them poor in some cases. And this is a real critique of money in politics, of a lot of the discourses that are taking place around our presidential elections now. Uh, and it's uh, it's fascinating to me to read because he's also indicating that these people, these powerful and wealthy people, don't have to follow the the normal ethical and moral concerns that everybody else does. And that's how they get to stay in power. Right. Abraham Beale here is going on a rant about the systemic oppression of capitalism, of the, the capitalist system. And I think we're supposed to be sympathetic to this. It, certainly for Lesson is a little money person. I guess Abraham Beale identifies as a little money person as well. And I'm not sure if we're going to actually ever see any big money people in this story, but I think that's going to be something that we should keep in mind when we get into the, the next two episodes. At this point, Forlesson and Beale are finally nearing model pattern products, and, and we are nearing the end of the, the section that we're covering on this episode. And we get a, a great description of the industrial park as they, they approach, and I'm, I'm just going to read this because it's, it's beautiful. They pass now through a level landscape dotted with great square buildings, which, despite their size, made no pretense of majesty or grace but seemed in every case intentionally ugly. 
They were constructed of the cheapest materials, mostly corrugated metal and cinder block, and each was surrounded by a high, rusty wire fence with a barren area of asphalt or gravel beyond it, as though to provide, for Lesson knew the thought was ridiculous, a clear field of fire for defenders within. And that is a, a chilling description of, a, of an industrial park. This is a chilling description of the place that Forlesson has to go spend the bulk of his time away from his wife, whether he wants to or not. And between two of the, the massive buildings, they, they see here a herd of horses, and, and Beale recognizes them as unbroken Mustangs. And this looks promising for him, because whoever owns them is going to need some help. And so Forlesson lets him out here. And then he continues on to model pattern products. And his car suggests that he hurry up. And he asks if they even actually know that he's coming. But it turns out that an employee service folder has already been made out for him. So all he needs to do is fill in his name when he gets there. And so he parks his car quite far away. And that's where we're going to leave him here. And we will pick up with the adventures of Emmanuel for lesson at work next time. Yeah, Wolf is really coming down hard on these brutalist uh, industrial parks and how much land they waste. I mean, the presence of wild Mustangs between these industrial buildings couldn't represent a clearer picture of like the promise of the American frontier and the West and what we've what we've replaced it with are these giant industrial parks and, and highways that are out of vogue almost as soon as they're built. There's nothing pretty about them. There's nothing pleasing to the eye. There's no way they blend into the landscape. They're just ugly you know and and so i think you know the mustangs must have some symbolic value here in terms of the american spirit of freedom and and the ideas that settled the west and pushed out the frontier but abraham beale is going to break these creatures too that's what his job is going to be one more thing i i want to point out about abraham beale before we close out the episode is that he's described as having an essence that is like more solid than his material presence and that maybe he even he seems transparent on some level to uh to for lesson so there's some metaphysics here that we'll have to pick up in our discussion episode but some are ghosts uh, i think which is maybe the implication of this this language here with this character yeah i think at this point that we've we've got at least two of the the types of dead people on this this 12 item list i think we, we've got two of them already ticked off that list well, on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this section of For a Lesson. Point out stuff you think we missed that's relevant to the story. And while you're waiting for the, the next episode, please go check out our new Neil Gaiman podcast, Hanging Out with the Dream King. We'd love to have you reading along with us and, and, and talking with us on the forum as well. So next time here, we're going to be covering up to page 139 of this story. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>